This is the How Design Live podcast, hosted by programming partner Elise Bennett, national speaker, author of seven business books for creative professionals, and founder of marketing-mentor.com. Listen to her lively conversations with past and future How Design Live speakers about the business of creativity and creativity in business. Here's Elise Bennett. Today's episode is a special treat. Last month, I met Kevin Carroll, author and speaker, friend of How and past How speaker. I also just found out that one thing Kevin and I have in common is that How gave both of us our very first speaking gigs. Anyway, I met Kevin at SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design. I was in the audience for his Path to Professional Presentations. But it wasn't really on giving presentations. It was about something more important, being present, showing up. How do we show up? I can tell that's one of his foundational questions. Kevin is all about connecting with people. He's not the sage from the stage. He practices what he preaches, which makes him an excellent and very generous networker and collaborator. In fact, he's shared with listeners a montage of some of his favorite collaborations with Anne Willoughby and Corden McKenzie, also old friends of How. So look for that link in the episode description. And I'll leave you with my favorite quote from our conversation. He said, always be in beta, always improving, always updating. So listen and learn. Hello, Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Elise. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Please introduce yourself. I'm Kevin Carroll, residing in Portland, Oregon, the Rose City, a.k.a. Portlandia. I'm an author, speaker, instigator of inspiration, and friend of HAL Design and HAL Conference. Absolutely. And do you think of yourself as a designer? I think I am a creative and a designer of human experiences. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. And let's just start with a little bit of the history, the how history first, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit about your own personal history of how you came to be an author, a speaker, and a catalyst, as you like to say. Because um, we were just talking about how how gave us both our first firsts of certain things. And uh, you tell us the story of what how gave you. Oh, how? Well, I was at Nike. I can't remember the exact year. I think it was like 2002. And I got approached about speaking at the conference doing a breakout session. And I was speaking to Bryn Muth. And conversation, conversation, conversation. Hey, how do you feel about doing a keynote for general session. Sure, no problem, right? That was my attitude. I didn't understand like the number of people that came and all of that. Mm. And so uh, I'm like, sure, no problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I go down to Orlando where it was being held and I go to the venue and the, the partitions were up. So I'm up on stage kind of doing a little mic check and everything. I'm like, oh yeah, this is fine. I said, it's not gonna be a problem. But when I came back, the partitions were open and the room was monstrous. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to connect with the people all the way in the back? 
because they were so far away from the stage. And so I met with Ann Willoughby. That was my first time I met Ann Willoughby from Willoughby Design in Kansas City. She came backstage and said hello to me and said that we were going to connect afterwards. And then she said, Gordon McKenzie would be so proud to know that you're on stage because we have him in common as a friend. And I said, thank you so much. And she said, I'm going to be rooting for you right in the front row. I said, okay. And so I'm backstage still thinking, how am I going to connect with those people way in the back? So I actually left the backstage, walked around the, build, the, the room in the hallway, and I started from the very back of the room. And I introduced myself to people and were saying hello. And then I worked my way all the way up to the stage. And that was the way I made the room smaller and how. So it lived in infamy that I was the guy who started from the back of the room for many, many years. People said, there was a speaker who started in the back of the room. So you should ask Bryn about that because she'll remember. Oh, that's funny. Okay, I will. And actually, I mean, you and I met... Uh, last month at SCAD in Savannah, the Savannah College of Art and Design, because you are working with them. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. But I do remember noticing that before the talk started that you gave, you were in the audience talking to people. So what's your strategy there? Why why do you do that? It's always going to be um, the idea is how do you make the room smaller and how do you make the room more personal and how do you get beyond it feeling like a transaction and making it feel like it's transformational. And that's what I'm trying to do all the time. And so already starting, it's, it's kind of that Cirque du Soleil um, mindset. They start the program well before you enter the tent. So I've been here in Portland and they've come and performed here many times. And sometimes they actually put performers on public transportation Wow. That they know people are going to be using to head to the event. And so they put them on there and they do small little skits and things basically to just in, you know, warm the room up a little bit and get people excited about it, but also to create this magical exchange and connection. And so that's something I've always been mindful of is connecting and the importance of connecting early so that you have people rooting for you. And I think that's really served me well, understanding that engagement can start well before you're on stage speaking to an audience. Maybe it's just always pervasive, the idea of engagement. I know that uh, in the past, I mean, I don't do it as a technique or a strategy or anything, but sometimes I do before I speak, talk to some of the people in the room, but I do find it's a little tricky and challenging because my mind is not automatically there. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and I want to make sure I remember everything. So how do you bring your full attention to the actual people you're talking to when you do that? Because that's what's going to allow me to feel even more comfortable on stage and that I own the room. Because now I have, I know where those people are that I spoke with And they're rooting for me because we had a conversation. It wasn't transactional. I was asking them specific questions or just asking where they came from. Sometimes they recognize me. Sometimes they don't um, before I go up on stage. And so that's always a fun moment, too, when there's a little bit of surprise. But there's something, I think, really wonderful about always trying to tap into the humanity in the room. And that's something that I just know is important for me when I go on stage and I'm having a conversation because that's what I'm talking about is 
How do we connect as human beings? Why are we finding or, or seeking out these moments to belong? Which is one of the things that you heard me talk about, belonging. It's so important. And so even when we're in these moments where we're going to conferences or whatever, it's still about community. It's still about belonging. It's still about connecting. So I can't be on stage talking about it and like, hey, stay away from me. I don't want to talk to you. I'm in my, I'm in my zone. So it's taken me a little bit to understand that when I enter that space, the conference center, whatever, my performance already starts. It's not when I get on stage. It starts when I cross that threshold and enter that building. And I think that's an, an important piece that I, a mindset and an attitude that I bring to my craft. I think that makes sense. And you can definitely tell the difference. And in a way, it reminds me of something that I also try to do, which is make no distinction between the big, massive people that you're speaking to and the one person you were just shaking hands with. Like, there's no big difference between that. Do you think about it that way, too? I don't know if I necessarily think about it with that level of specificity. I think that's really amazing that you do that. But uh, no, I think, I think I'm just really so mindful and aware of connecting with people and how people receive that. Because a lot of times when people are walking into those rooms for a lecture or, you know, a lunch and learn, a keynote, whatever, they come in with a level of trepidation many times. Because there's this like, what's going to happen? What's going on? Do I know anybody in here? People cluster with their friends and all of that. And so I want to break down that barrier and, and just really make it feel a little more inviting. And so that's really what I'm looking at is how can I actually plant some breadcrumbs all over that room as quickly as I can, right? And so I like to show up early and maybe there's another speaker before me so that I can overhear what they say and hook on to some of that when I'm on stage. I always like to be able to just let people know that I was just, I was very present when I was in the room. And so, yeah, so I'm always thinking about it in terms of the, the collective energy and the collective connection in the room. And I noticed also that you had a big table full of stuff that you were giving away and throwing out into the audience. What's the idea behind that? Oh, everybody loves to get something. Come on. <laughs> like, so <laughs> yes. so gifting is never a bad thing. And I, um, I have, a, I, I believe, a generous spirit. It's just kind of wired in me that uh, that, um, that should be the way that you walk through the day and, and in life. And so I'm always thinking about ways to uh, gift my message in a form that's a book or a ball or a card or something to embed that message further and to make them storytellers when they leave. Because now they've got this artifact in their hand from the conversation. Now they're going to go back to their dorm, to their business, to their home, to their community. And people are going to ask, hey, what have you been up to? Oh my gosh, I was just at this thing. And look, this guy gave me this thing. And this is And there you go. So it, I think there's always something amazing when people don't realize that they've been tasked with carrying on the message beyond that venue, beyond that moment. And I don't make it heavy handed and tell them, this is what I expect you to do. I know it's going to happen because there's a value attached to receiving that. And so I think they make friends because people want to see what they got. So there's always just this opportunity to create more connection via that. 
And you gave me a red rubber ball at yes. the very end of your presentation. And I thank you for that. And I know that the red rubber ball has a lot of significance in your world and in your history. So let's talk a little bit about that. Oh, uh, well, that's, you know, that's the embodiment of my journey, the chase, right? The ball, right? Which represents chasing something. And for me, it was first chasing um, the ability to be connected to a community that encouraged me and supported me because of my dysfunctional childhood. And then it became sports and the importance of being on a team, but not necessarily trophies or medals of first place. And then it became an icon for me in many ways where I started to notice that when I traveled around the world, I could find a ball anywhere or bring a ball with me and I automatically connected with people. And so I started to realize the power of play and its importance in all of our lives and that we all have a play history. And so once I started to realize our connection through something so iconic, but even more so something that a lot of people take for granted or don't really value the same way as I did, I enjoyed being able to point it out to people that why play matters and why it's important and why sports matter and and why you shouldn't marginalize your play and you should celebrate it as often as possible. And so that's what I've really uh, enjoyed about that innocent moment of inspiration back in my childhood and how it's turned into the platform that I like to speak about. Okay, now I have several different questions at once, but I can only ask one at a time. So I'm going to go with uh, my free associating, which is what do you, how do you think about the relationship between play and work then? Uh, they, well, there's this opportunity that association relationship between play and work there, they can be one and the same where you can find an opportunity to blur the lines between them. I often cite that James Mishner quote, the master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play. And I cite that quite a bit because if you are excited about what you're doing each day or what that, that work, that job avails to you as it relates to something that's an inspiration for you or something you care about, a passion, then why wouldn't you get up with a level of excitement? And why would you begrudge that quote unquote job, that work? Because that work can allow you to play. And that play might be something outside of that nine to five or whatever it might be. And then for other people, especially in creative endeavors, you could actually be, you know, your work is your play. Right. And so that could be something really wonderful about it. So I I try to not find a difference between them. I try to blur the lines between them. And a lot of the, I'm going to try to tie this to the business aspect of creativity, since that's something I am on a mission to connect for people, actually. And so often I work with designers and other creative people who definitely see the doing of the work as playful, even if sometimes for a client, it's a little less playful than when they would be doing it only for themselves. But they see the business side of running a creative business as work. And I often 
am amazed actually at how creative people neglect to bring their creativity to the business side of their work. And I feel like if you can see how negotiating or initiating the money conversation with someone could be fun, you could learn to love it and you could get really good at it and then you'd make a lot of money. But if you have this barrier in your head, like, oh no, that's the work thing and I'm not good at it. And I wonder if that's like the marginalization you were referring to before or just this compartmentalizing that I see people do. What would you say to that? So a friend of mine, he put it really simply to me when I left Nike in 2004 and I started my business. He said, you can own your business, Kevin, or you could have a business. And he said, a lot of creative people have businesses, but they don't own their business. And he said, the difference is you do the things you, that are unpleasant. You're willing to do those things with the same level of intention as you put into the creative piece. And you understand that they have to mutually exist. And so I, I affectionately call it my adulting time, right? When I have to do my business stuff, but I understand doing it. Like I understand the why behind it. And I wasn't good at it at first, right? And I didn't like it. And he said, you just have to get smart about it and you have to be clever about it and you have to find what works for you. You don't have to do it like everyone else, but you have to find what works best for you so that you truly understand your business in all facets of it. And when I decided to own my business and really roll my sleeves up and get in there, and he said, you don't have to stay in it long, but you got to get in there and just know the inner workings of your business. It really made a difference in how I felt empowered. I felt so much more empowered around the way that I ran my business, the way that my business ran, and the way I spoke about my business. Can you give us some specifics? I mean, just recognizing that when I first started, I had a team of people, but if they weren't going to add value, I didn't need them anymore. But that was pointed out to me, um, you know, first by my wife when she said, I think you could, you know, better serve your business model if you weren't managing people and that you were acting like you do best, which is an individual contributor that activates, you know, specialists as needed for certain things. And so when I actually reimagined my business construct, everything freed up for me because I was managing individuals and managing payroll and I was going out doing my work to meet payroll. And it wasn't that I was getting any value from the individuals. They were good people, but they weren't adding value. And once I realized that I was better suited not worrying about managing people all the time and like, hey, when I need people, I'll have this cadre of creatives, right? And people who are specialists in certain things. And that really helped me free me. It freed me. And that was one of the things that I started to understand. And once I started doing that, and recognizing how that empowered me, then I spoke really clearly about what my business was, right? I thought then I was the Oprah of sports, right? And I'm going to have this team of people. We're all going to go out and do all these things, right? And, so, mm -hmm. and then I realized, no, I'm better suited as an individual contributor who activates people as necessary for projects so that I don't have this overhead and this worry and concern that I got to make sure I meet payroll to pay them. And my voice, my, my intention, my clarity all changed. And so I'm quick when people say, so tell me about your business model. It's easy to say it. 
I'm an individual contributor who activates, you know, experts as necessary to achieve the projects or goals that I have. That's how I operate. And I think that's really something that has been so valuable for me is to really know how I work best as a creative, right? As someone who's trying to create experiences that have impact on others. Instead of fulfilling a model or an image of what a business is or looks like. Exactly. Right. And I had it in my head. It needed to be this because that's the way most people have their business. Right. Right. And I had all these people advising me that that's the way it needed to be because, well, you're the expert. Yeah, you know best. But once I discovered what was best for me, then everything shifted. Mm hmm. Know thyself, right? Isn't that know thyself, right? Know thyself. Oh, yes. But there is, I think you have to go through some of that. I think that's real, that you go through some of those things where you have to skin your knees and fall a little bit and recognize that. But you always have to be this person seeking that information, right? And you, you heard me mention this when you were at the conversation I had with the students, that we have to stay in beta, Right. We have to always be in beta, always be improving, always updating, especially as business owners. Right. And creatives, you have to be always thinking about how am I improving? Is this working? Absolutely. In its current state, is this the right way? And if it is, okay. But there's always some little nuance you can do to improve or get better at something. And so that's what I'm always trying to do is stay in beta. And also, I would add the idea there that things take time. They take, you know, twice or three times as long as you want them to take. And people usually have expectations that it's going to happen quicker or they're going to get what they want sooner. And then they get frustrated that they didn't. And so just talk a little bit about you've been in business now. It sounds like if I'm doing my math correctly, 15 years on your own. So how do you think about the longevity aspect? I'm a 15-year overnight sensation. <laughs> That's kind of how right. I look at it. I mean, I mean, just I've been working at the craft and always trying to improve and recognizing that um, I'm always going to be leveling up and raising my game and just always look at it that way. And, and that it is, as, as I've pointed out to many people, the lonely work, right? Sometimes it's unglamorous. Sometimes people don't know all that extra work you're putting in to make it quote unquote look so easy. And it's that willingness to put in the work and recognize that hard work never goes unrewarded. It's going to get rewarded if you put in that good work, right? But it has to be that good, like I was in sports, right? So you can practice or you can have really good practice because if you practice, but it's not good practice, you get bad habits. But if you are being intentional about the practice and the craft, it will, it will pay dividends, but many times not in the way you anticipated or expected. Excellent. All right. One more question. And I want to just come back to kind of where we started, which is with your project with SCAD. Just explain a little bit about what you're doing, how that came about, what's the mission, just so we can understand better. I think it's really interesting because SCAD is always do, on the cutting edge, you know, bringing things to students that obviously they need and that no other schools are offering. Yeah, well, I I call SCAD my happy place. I love going there and I get to uh, work as the term they've given is the engagement coach. But a friend of mine actually pointed out to me, he says, Kevin, you're their catalyst. It's like you get to work all over the place like you did at Nike because you're not just in the 
classroom with faculty, you're working with staff, you're working with the uh, artist athletes. That's what they call their student athletes. You're working with the coaches. Um, I get a chance to really talk about how you show up and whatever your role or whatever your position there at the time, be it student, be it faculty, be it staff, be it artist, athlete, be it coach, how are you showing up? How are you being present? How are you bringing your best self and how are you help advance your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations and your goals? And so I get to talk with individuals and teams and administrators about that. And I love going there because First of all, it's just an amazing, you know, destination from a from a next generation of leaders, makers, doers, and dreamers, right, in the creative careers. And to be around that and surrounded by that energy is amazing and phenomenal and inspiring. But I also just love the fact that I get a chance to share my wisdom, right, and to be a bit of this sage for them as it relates to what's out there in the world. And so my ability to avail to the students, especially different conversations, different relationships, different people to reach out to. And there was a young lady who just came out here to Portland, Oregon, and happened to be, her mother works out here in the city. And she said, I'm coming out. And I met her because she's a soccer player there on the women's soccer team. And she's a fashion design major. And we exchanged hellos. And then I said, hey, if you ever come to Portland. And so she reached out and I actually introduced her to several people for ha- to have conversations with. When she came out here, she just sent me a text before our call today and said, I can't wait to give you my update. She said it was so inspiring. And the people that you connected me with was really amazing. And that's what I enjoy doing, right, is throwing the rope back over for the next generation, being a bit of that mentor slash sponsor on their behalf. But I think SCAD has been so amazing with me and trusting me and entrusting me with uh, that next generation and probably, um, you know, the individuals who are going to be the game changers. So I love coming there. And you are obviously an excellent networker. I can see it and I can hear it. And you also talked about having the opportunity to be the sage. And it reminded me, I think you did say that night that you don't like to be the sage from the stage, right? No, I want to be connecting with you and having conversations and supporting you and helping and being, you know, I don't just want to be on stage espousing my wisdom and sit at my feet. So some Socrates, Plato kind of thing. No, I want to, you know, spend time with you and get to know you and, and also challenge you. So it's more about the relationship and the conversations that happen after the stage, right? I call them my whisper conversations many times that I have with people, meeting for coffee, meeting for tea, meeting for, you know, uh, at the soccer field or whatever, for a kickabout, whatever it might be. But that's what I really enjoy is those communications post the stage moments. Okay, so I know I said that was my last question, but I did think of one more (laughs) because, you know, you're talking about the mission to help people show up as their best selves. And I'm wondering in this world of technology and screens where people are amazingly, you know, everywhere focused on their screen, how do you think about that and this idea of showing up? Well, I, I, I'm not anti-tech. I think it's an amazing amplifier of our humanity. It should never take the, repl- the place of. It's not in lieu of humanity. It should be amplifying us. 
So how do you have and recognize the value of curiosity and wonder and magic, right? And having that curiosity and knowing it will serve you well, especially as you want to advance a hope, a dream, or aspiration, that's going to serve you well. And so recognizing that there's an amazing big screen called life. And so we should look up every once in a while at that screen too, because that could be the catalyst for you to turn an idea, a hope, or dream into reality. So I think that's a key thing. But I love technology. I think it's amazing, but it should never be in lieu of your humanity and your ability to connect. Beautiful. That is a perfect place to put the bookmark, Kevin. And it is just a bookmark because I know that we're going to talk again and hopefully I'll see you next time when you're in Savannah. Yes. I can't wait, Elise. I can't wait. And we'll make sure Jason doesn't snatch you away from me. <laughs> like he's so good at doing. Yes. That's right. Yes. Excellent. Well done. Well done. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Of course. And tell people where they can find you online. Uh, just you can find me on social at KC Catalyst with a K, K-C-K-A-T-A-L-Y-S-T. So all of my social is that. You can find me easy there. Beautiful. And we'll post those links uh, where people can find them also. Thank you for your time today, Kevin. And uh, I will see you soon. Okay. Be well. Godspeed. Peace. Peace. 